Let's pray. Triune God, you alone are worthy to be supremely elevated and to sit and reign supreme on the throne of our hearts. We confess that we often in our sin elevate ourselves and other things and people to a place of worship. By the truth of your word, convict us today of our complacency about idolatry. Cause us to be people who understand that what is in our best interest is to honor you above all other things in our lives. We pray these things because of Jesus. Amen. In Acts chapter 19, we are now our third Sunday in Acts 19, and in this chapter, Luke has been presenting Ephesus as a prime example of the difference that Jesus makes. First, Luke demonstrated that the sole object of faith that can restore us to God is Jesus, because he is God, and he is God's chosen means. And then we also saw that the greatest miracle God does is to transform people by his spirit to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And those who, now as we continue, we'll see those who rightly exalt Jesus are of necessity demolishing evil practices, which we saw last time, and now also dethroning idolatry. So as Paul plans his departure from Ephesus, where he's been in ministry for quite some time already, as Paul is planning his departure, a riot breaks out in Ephesus over the societal impact of Christianity because of the change that it makes in people's lives. Read with me Acts 19, verses 21 to 41. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. And these craftsmen he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Verse 27, and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she, she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, 
Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. I'm going to stop there and give you a little break from the reading just to show you this uh, couple of images here. When it says going into the theater, this would have been one of these great outdoor theaters that here's, here's a picture of the ruins of this uh, massive theater in Ephesus. And so you, you need to picture a place that can seat 17 to 25,000 people. And it was a place that was not only where they, they held great events, but it's where they transacted town business. But we have a great mob of people rushing into the theater, dragging with them some Christians, shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So that's where this is taking place. And here also is a, a digital rendering of what it probably would have been like before it was destroyed. This is the type of location with crowds shouting. Verse 30, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples wouldn't let him. We've heard several things like this in, in Acts where the disciples are aiming to protect Paul. And even some of the Asiarchs who were his friends sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them didn't even know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Thousands of people shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky, meaning a meteorite? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied. You ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Remember that a proconsul is the person who is governor of an entire province. And the proconsuls would at times uh, travel to major cities and then uh, act as judge for certain cases that rose to the level of them needing to address it. Let them bring charges against one another, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly that meets in the town. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion." And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now, the two sections that we have today are, are divided in the brief one, verses 21 and 22, and then verse 23 all the way through verse 41 in our text, each one beginning with a, a general time marker. Now, after these events, the previous events in Ephesus where the, the gospel had been spreading all throughout Asia Minor, and then the events where uh, the the uh, 
false magic was proven impotent compared to the work of the Holy Spirit, and people were burning their magical books after those events. That's one marker. And then the next marker, about that time, Luke has these general markers that he likes to use. So we'll look briefly at Paul's plans and then turn our attention to the upheaval in Ephesus over Christianity. Christians behaving like Christians who have put away the sinful practices of their past to promote Jesus. A significant number of these changed lives in a given region necessarily impacts society. Christianity making waves then is unwelcome by those with a vested self-interest in the idolatrous status quo. And then the idolatrous masses are readily whipped into a confusion, an unreasoned frenzy of persecution toward that which they believe threatens their self-interest. Those in power, if they remain idolatrous, will stem persecution so long as it is in their own perceived best interest. Now, we can't just leave what Luke states as a his, historical theolo, theological facts. We won't just leave it there, Paul's future plans and Christianity making waves in Ephesus. We must figure out what to walk away with from the truth presented in God's word. So I'm going to present them to you in these two ways. First of all, Christians strive for Jesus to be enthroned among all people. And secondly, Wherever Jesus changes lives, we can anticipate, but must not be deterred by, the opposition that arises due to self-interested idolatry or idolatrous self-interest. So as Paul prepares to leave Ephesus, his plans and partnerships don't prioritize self-interest, but instead focus on seeing Jesus enthroned in every place. Ask yourself, Why is Paul making decision to depart when things are going so well? We said in verse 10, the gospel was spreading everywhere. And then in verse verse 20, that the word of the Lord was prevailing mightily. And yet Paul is making plans to go. And Paul didn't know yet that there was going to be rioting. So why does Paul do this? Because the mature missionary mindset strives to see Jesus enthroned among all people. And it's not unique to Paul or even to so-called missionaries who specifically leave home in order to promote the gospel elsewhere. No, Christians, all of us should strive to see Jesus exalted and enthroned among all people. Yes, Jesus commanded us, but we also believe he deserves to be exalted among all people in every place. Christians exalt Jesus to such heights in our own hearts that we strive to see him enthroned among all people. So Paul's planning not only outlines the rest of Acts, which it does do, but it also serves to show the mature missionary mindset, which should be the case for all of Christ's people, striving to see Jesus enthroned in every place. Paul's transitional plans in Ephesus serve as, as a sort of roadmap, rap, roadmap excuse me, for the remainder of, Ephesus, or remainder of Acts and as a pattern for advancing the gospel through partners in ministry. So I want you to note, first of all, Paul's strategic planning for gospel advance, and then secondly, notice Paul progressively training and releasing ministry partners. 
Paul will indeed travel through Macedonia and Achaia on his way back to Jerusalem, and then he will slowly make his way to Rome, though not by the means he would have anticipated at this point. Paul will be arrested in Jerusalem, and he will be put on trial after trial after trial, eventually being on trial in Rome. But he will make it to witness in Rome. He will go as a prisoner under trial. But for Paul, Rome is strategic. So he wants to go to Rome because Rome was quite literally the influential center of the whole Roman world. If I can reach all of Asia Minor from Ephesus, imagine what Christians can do from Rome. And then as we said, secondly, Paul's plans also reflect something important about his partnerships. Paul can't be in two places at once. And he wanted to collect donations for the poor in Jerusalem So he sends Timothy and Erastus on in front of him to lay the groundwork for his coming. And Timothy, we know, but Erastus seems to have been a co-worker from Corinth, who may have been that city's treasurer at one time. And Paul has influential friends, whether they're believers or not. And Paul undoubtedly witnesses to these friends, and some believe And some do not. We notice from the Asiarchs who are his friends that they still respect him. But Erastus was a well-to-do and influential member of society from Corinth who is now also a partner in ministry. We're also reminded here that Paul will not always be present. So Paul has it in his mind, I will not always be here. Who knows when they're going to put me to death? like they did to Stephen, like they did to John, like they did to Jesus. So he's preparing to replace himself at all times and in every place he goes. Shouldn't we too be striving to raise up men and women who will carry on and even surpass us in ministry for Christ? That was kind of the point of the men's breakfast yesterday. To mentor other people in their discipleship which is to grow in becoming like Christ and to teach what Jesus taught. And so I don't just mean like as a church, as an organization, but each one of us doing this. Because Christians strive to see Jesus enthroned among all people, and that starts with other people closest to you. But as Paul prepares to leave Ephesus, we discover also that Christianity has been making waves in Ephesus by the simple change that Jesus has made in people's lives. So according to Luke, although Christianity is not a threat to a truly just government and law, it makes waves in society due to the status quo of idolatrous self-interest. Christians whose lives are dramatically changed threaten this status quo of self-interested idolatry in society because we're, we're demolishing our own evil practices. Burn them. And we're dethroning idolatry in our lives. Luke here shows the Ephesians then overreacting, but he knows the underlying truth is that Jesus necessarily makes this much difference. So as Christians impact society by dethroning idolatry in our own hearts and lives, 
We can anticipate persecution from idolatrous self-interest, but such opposition must not deter us. At that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way, Christianity, makes waves in society because exalting Jesus necessarily dethrones idolatry. Jesus being the embodiment of the one true God. I'm always telling you that Luke highlights specific episodes for a reason. So he chooses to recount this Ephesus episode in detail because it's a, it's a specific historical event, but it's one in Ephesus that is representative of universal trends. So I'll emphasize this by, by showing you how the major players, other than Jesus Christ embodying the one true God who sits alone on a throne of supremacy, I want to show you how the other players in this section embody certain patterns and characteristics that were true then, and they were true in other places, and they're true in our own lives. So Demetrius the silversmith, first of all, embodies the idolatrous self-interest of men. Demetrius, we can tell, is influential among the the craftsmen. Perhaps he's even the leader of some kind of professional guild of craftsmen. And although he specifically made idols from precious materials, many other household gods and souvenirs and amulets, even small representations of Artemis or of her temple, would have been made of less expensive things like terracotta, you know, baked clay. So there are other artisans making making these idols from not only metal, but from wood, from clay, um, maybe from other things collected, and they're all making a profit off of selling these idols, verse 25. So what's the problem? Well, in verse 27, we saw, and there is danger, he says, of not only this trade of ours coming into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. His religious piety, when you listen carefully, is little more than a thin veil for personal economic interest. But this tactic is quite successful in rousing others to his side. There is personal profit to be considered, plus there are corporate economic issues to be considered, plus there is religious and civic pride intertwined together with all of this worship of Artemis. In this verse, we hear also the mention of the danger that she might be deposed of her magnificence. Artemis is at risk of being dethroned of her status. Now we know, or we ought to know, that idolatry in fact must be dethroned because the place of deity belongs only to the one true God. The essence of idolatry is to worship the creature rather than the creator. The essence of idolatry is to worship the creature rather than the creator. So idolatry is to worship created things like the sun, moon, and stars. And idolatry is to worship gods of our own making, including false deities. And idolatry is also to worship ourselves and our desires. How little we realize that the real object of our worship, of our devotion, is most often ourselves. You think about making gods in our own image, who do we really worship? 
Idolatry betrays our ungodly self-interest, our godless self-interest. It betrays our arrogance to make gods in our own image that we might worship them. Just so then, in our text, Artemis of the Ephesians embodies idolatry, gods of our own making. The Greek goddess Artemis was also known to the Romans as Diana. The Greek goddess Diana. But in in Ephesus, there's acceptance and fusion of, of worshiping false gods, not only in Ephesus, but in all of the Greek and Roman world. So there's a, there's a fusion of worshiping fa- false gods, and it's so common that this Ephesian version was her own thing. She's no longer just the virgin archer huntress of nature and fertility, but she's now been fused with an Asian mother goddess of fertility. And features of surviving statues of Artemis Ephesia displayed these characteristics in a way that I won't explain or show with young company in our presence. So gods of our own making are a reflection of our, our, our own depraved desires and our own depraved ways of thinking. Greek gods and all gods of our own invention, they behave like us, but just with more power and impunity. They get away with it. It's what we wish we could be and do. Be like Zeus and get away with it. Nobody holds him accountable. This strikes us as utter nonsense once we believe in the existence of a God who is holy, transcendently other as compared to us. That's God. So Demetrius gets this right, interestingly enough. Paul does teach that gods made by human hands are not gods at all. In Acts chapter 17 in Athens, Paul had said, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. You can't fashion this God with your hands as if he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So the fact is that Artemis ought to be deposed and counted as nothing. So speaking of Paul, in our text, Paul and those who are persuaded by Christ, they embody the invasiveness of Christianity. Now, it might surprise you that I'm saying this, and let me explain. Our text says not only in Ephesus, but in all of Asia, Demetrius claims, and he's not wrong. Paul and those who have been persuaded are making waves everywhere. What is up with these people? Christianity is meddlesome and Christianity is invasive. As sin is like a fatal disease that has infected everyone, so also true Christianity, submission to Jesus, is like an, an infection or a contagious remedy that restores healthy relationship to God. It's contagious, it's invasive, it's meddlesome, it's exclusive. Faith in Jesus dramatically changes the way we view our relationship to God, and it dramatically changes the way we view our relationship to the world. We live it and we say it. When someone sees you living differently, 
and they see you have joy in trial, and they see that you have conviction about everything that you do, they say, where does your joy come from? Where does your conviction come from? And you say, let me tell you that Jesus has cured my soul of its own sinful self-destruction. Jesus has cured me of my idolatry. By contrast, do you know how you can spot false gods in a false gospel? People can just attach it as a side feature with little or no impact to their lives. If, if these guys could have attached Jesus, they would have, but that's not an option. You can't fuse Jesus with your other religious stuff. No, he's God, and there's only one God. Everything else gets dethroned. Yeah, Christianity stirs up trouble for our self-interest self and idolatry. Jesus bursts onto the scene of our lives, and he, upend, he upends our hearts. He turns upside down our understanding of reality. We stop worshiping us, and we make a start of worshiping God through faith in Jesus. And then by his spirit, he continues to guide us such that we're tearing down everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we keep putting on, on ourselves that which reflects Christ's image. We tear down, we throw away, we burn that which reflects the old nature, and we try to put on that which reflects Jesus. So the more idolatrous the society, the sharper the contrast of true Christianity. You're going to start feeling it in America, Christians. And the Jews, by comparison, the Jews kind of, you think about this context, the Jews minded their own business a lot better than this new Christianity. Although many Jews continue to worship God in their own way wherever they may have spread out, remember there are synagogues in all of these major cities, and they allowed others to become proselytes and to worship Jehovah, but they weren't missionaries. Christians are meddlesome missionaries. Everywhere we go, Judaism fit better into the mold of so-called religious tolerance of the Roman Empire in this period of peace. And in God's providence, the Pax Romana was a fantastic opportunity for the spread of Christianity. But we learn in Acts that Christianity just keeps rocking the boat. Christianity proves a little more problematic because, well, Christians are commanded to and motivated to and empowered by the Spirit of God, right? Acts 1.8, to witness, to see Jesus exalted and enthroned among all peoples in every place. Christianity is unavoidably invasive and exclusive. There is but one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So again, in the example of the context here, it isn't difficult for momentum to grow quickly against Christianity. The mob here embodies the confused and the unreasoned mentality and momentum of the self-interested masses. Idolatry was a way of life, as we see it here. It's their religion, it's their politics, it's their economics, it's their civic pride, 
all inseparable from the worship of gods and goddesses of this Artemis Ephesia. So the craftsmen become enraged and they're shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, which stirs the city into confusion, a word that means a confused and disorderly uproar. Does that sound like you? They're going to riot. And it's also in verse two, this confusion. And they're shouting different things and, and most don't even know why they've come together. That sounds about right, doesn't it? Has this not proven to be true in broader American culture? The momentum of unreasonable mentality of, our, of the own desires of our own hearts such that the immorality of our society no longer, it doesn't make, it's literally irrational. And did not something very similar happen to Jesus? They're shouting, crown him the king at the beginning of the week. And at the end of the week, they're shouting, crucify him. Now there are some among them because of their association with Jesus and his people. A couple of Paul's companions get caught up in this tumult, in this uproar. Gaius and, Ericus, Gaius and Aristarchus embody the potential for being personally targeted for persecution in an ungodly society. These guys are targeted because they're known associates of the Apostle Paul. And Paul's friends are determined to protect him, not only the disciples, but even the local Asiarchs, whom, because they're not spoken of as disciples, I don't think these guys are even Christians. They're just friends the Asiarchs were keepers of Roman religion in the region, which was polytheistic in nature and included worshiping the emperor. But they're protecting Paul because he's the main target. These other guys get grabbed because they're the closest thing available. Christians are primary targets for those who love their idolatry. Again, isn't that still true in our context? I mean, you know of the court cases of the baker. You know of the court cases of the person who's just trying to make websites, and certain kinds of websites are against their conscience, and it goes all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. And no matter how unreasonable, they simply bully their way forward by being the loudest. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Shut your face. Leave us alone. And they prove their irrational frenzy by grabbing the easiest ones they can get their hands on at the time. Now, during all this ruckus in the theater, Alexander embodies the silenced voice of monotheism. We don't know if, if he's a Christian or simply a prominent Jew in that community. I think probably the latter. He's probably a prominent Jew in the community, but he's at least a monotheist. And so these crowds have no desire to listen to any monotheism. You may not remember this, but there was a, a film uh, uh, several years ago by a Jew named Ben Stein. And he was addressing the fact that, that all those who are monotheists in our, in our culture are just being expelled out of educational circles for trying to teach something other than a philosophy of naturalism. 
Things just don't change much. Unfortunately for the Jews, they may begin to have issues in the Roman world by association now with Christianity, which is ironically what many of them undoubtedly wanted to prevent. Wait, we're not those guys. But the Christians would prove that Christ is the fulfillment of Judaism. And so the Jews, too, are guilty by association. And unfortunately for Jews, they got throughout history have been mixed up in the middle of both sides. Misdirected so-called Christians would also persecute Jews. Finally, though, there is a voice that prevails due to the point that he makes regarding their own self-interest. There's a reason it works, self-interest. If we're a riotous, if we're a riotous people, essentially, he will say, we will lose our freedoms and privileges in Roman society. But beyond this, Luke also seems to have in mind that the town clerk embodies the voice of reason according to the just role that law and government should play. Christians are, in fact, ideal citizens of a civil society. So voices of reason, even idolatrous ones, should realize that Christians are law-abiding, ideal citizens of a civil society. And we should be ideal citizens of our civil society. Just legal procedures are on the side of the upright. Christians are no threat to Roman law. In fact, they're model citizens. Roman law, when functioning justly, would favor the upright. The question is whether or not fair treatment will last under Roman law and government, under all human law and government. Will justice really prevail? Luke gets the big picture. When when healthy Christians suffer at the hands of the law, injustice is served. When rational voices of justice prevail, Christians are safe. But when injustice is served, Christians suffer but such it is to be like Jesus. As we said, the clerk's position too is is still idolatrous and self-interested. He's he's an idol worshiper. He's actually self-interested. He'll be deposed of his position if this, he, he can't be the mayor of the town if people are rioting on his watch. And he tells them, we'll lose our freedoms if you guys riot like this. The Romans don't put up with this behavior. The idolatrous in places of power and authority will push for just treatment of Christians as long as it is in their own self-interest. So the lingering question from Luke is, will true justice prevail? Remember all these trials of Paul coming up? Will true justice prevail? Or what will happen when what is right is not in the self-interest of those in power? Jesus and his people are opposed in society, not because we're wrong, but precisely because we're right. And what are we right about? By God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, we're enthroning Jesus. Rightly submitting to Jesus changes people. 
and changed people change society. Though the idolatrous clamor loudly that Christianity is a threat, we must look beyond this to the goal of seeing Jesus enthroned everywhere. Our idolatry was no different. <laughs> we shouldn't be surprised. Unless by the Spirit of God, we dethrone idolatry and submit to Jesus, we're the same. And it's all God's grace to us. Although our, our idolatrous society doesn't know it, what is in everyone's best interest is to trust and obey God. So for our sake and theirs, we continue to exalt Jesus, whatever they may do to us. Here's the last thing I want you to think about, this problem of self-interest. We must redirect our self-interest. It's not that we don't have any self-interest, but the self, your self-interest needs to be redirected. Through Jesus, God graciously direct, redirects our self-interest toward himself. God is kind and loving to make it known to us that he is our highest good and greatest joy. To show us how sin is, is incurable by our own effort. For Jesus to be the fulfillment the, the required fulfillment himself for God to offer him to, and, and then for God to give us faith in Jesus in order that we may gain God who is our greatest good. We are idolatrous because we have misdirected self-interest. What we think is good is not good. What is in our best interest is to fear God and trust God and love him and obey him. That's what the Bible teaches about God. The example of Paul is that his self-interest is directed toward God, which also makes him focus on the interest of others. He makes plans according to what he thinks God desires of him. He trains and sends out his companions according to what he thinks best for the spread of the gospel and the strengthening of other churches. Our best interest is to put God where he belongs, on a throne all by himself. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you alone are God. The facts are already before us. You are God. And what you are doing for us by your grace through your son, Jesus Christ, and the work of your spirit is you're just helping us to see the truth and respond to it rightly. And so we thank you. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness. We thank you for your justice and your wrath satisfied through the death and resurrection of your own son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, that, that so many of us gathered here have by your grace, we have repented and believed in Jesus, and you are growing us and changing us. And Father, we pray for each heart yet that needs to repent and believe in Jesus Christ to be restored to you. By the work of your Spirit, be meddlesome in their lives. Be invasive in their hearts. Help us to be people who do what you have called us to do, which is to be different because of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.
by God's grace, do you mean that? Holy, holy, holy. God, you alone are king. God, tear down the idols in my life so that I'll worship you. God, use me as you desire. I am yours. Let's pray toward that end. Lord God, Father, Son, and Spirit, only you are holy, holy, holy. Convict us and use us as you see fit. By your grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are your humble servants. We are so grateful to be your children. Help us to be faithful ones. In the name of our Savior and Lord, we pray. Amen.